Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a special edition featuring highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference held on May 18, 2019 in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in Midtown Manhattan. The conference opened with a fascinating session featuring distinguished authors Stacey Schiff, Judith Thurman, and David Remnick. The executive director of the Levy Center, Kai Bird, presented opening remarks. Thank you. Uh, On behalf of the Biography Center, and due to the generous funding of Shelby White and the Leon Levy Foundation, we are very gratified to be able to host this conference for the second year running. BIO was actually conceived at a meeting here at the Leon Levy Center exactly a decade ago, and I believe we have an invaluable symbiotic relationship, and I hope this partnership can continue in many forms for years to come. Uh, You know, the the life of a biographer is very solitary, lonely work, long hours, and uh, I think we often feel isolated, and there's one day a year when we can gather together as, (laughs) and here's the evidence. You know, I have a a New Yorker cartoon in my, hanging on my bathroom wall from 1985. It depicts a... uh, author, a man, sitting obviously in a basement, typing away on a typewriter. There were no computers then. And uh, there are piles of manuscript lying on the floor, on the desk. And his wife is standing up at the top of the stairwell looking down. And he's looking back up and he's saying, finish it? Why would I want to finish it? And that's also part of the life of a biographer. We're, we're obsessed. We really love our work. Um, and so, again, that's another reason why we're all together here. And now I turn it over to our illustrious panel to get the conversation Great. going. Thank you. Uh, I'm David Ramnick from The New Yorker, the guy who publishes cartoons for people's bathrooms, and the receiver of complaints that they pile up so high I don't know what to do with them. Um, When Ruth Franklin asked me to do this, uh, I immediately reached out, which is to say, um, handcuffed my two friends, um, Stacy Schiff and and Judith Thurman. I'm very grateful that they could make it this morning to uh, talk in front of you. Stacy, of course, is the biographer of Vera Nabokov, a book that won the Pulitzer Prize and, and, and my heart. Um, she is a finalist for the Pulitzer for her biography of, of Saint Exupéry. Um, she wrote a, another book on Benjamin Franklin's experience in France and uh, how it helped create America. Uh, maybe her most daring um, book in, in a certain research sense, which we can discuss, is the biography of Cleopatra, a remarkable work and most recently her book, The Witches, which both in its opening scared me to death uh, and enthralled me. It's it's an extraordinary uh, series of books and 
Judith Thurman, who's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2000, um, thankfully, and the collection of her work at The New Yorker is a, um, a book called Cleopatra's Nose, 39 Varieties of Desire. She once described herself as the sex correspondent of The New Yorker. <laughs> I, I really don't know what she meant by that, um, but I'll, I, I think it's a great thing because that should get a lot of traffic on the internet. Um, she won the National Book Award for her remarkable book on Isaac Dinesen, uh, a book for which she just had to go out and learn Danish, which is the kind of thing that biographers do, which is why I don't write them. Um, <laughs> and more recently, her biography of Colette, uh, Secrets of the Flesh, uh, led me and many, many other readers back to that, I think, really overlooked, underrated, uh, writer of fiction, which was uh, an ancillary gift to Judith's book itself. Uh, her book on Isaac Dinesen, of course, was the foundation for Meryl Streep's greatest moment in Out of Africa. So, both of you come to your literary lives with lots of skills, lots of interests, a passionate reading of uh, all kinds of things. Why did you become biographers? Why did you choose this genre, instead of writing novels, um, only essays, or histories, or any, anything else that you could have done, why biography? Maybe start with Stacy. I think that probably those of us in this room are the only people out there not writing memoirs. Um, <laughs> and I'm assuming there might be a reason for that. Um, I think initially, on my part, it was, I mean, no one ever sits on the stoop as a kid and says, I want to be a biographer when I grow up. Um, at least I haven't met that person yet. Um, and I think initially to me, the, the idea of crawling into someone else's skin was very appealing, but so was the idea um, of writing history from a more intimate perspective and of writing a book that had a very clear beginning, middle, and an end, which for a neophyte was a very um, attractive concept. I obviously had no idea what I was getting myself into. I'd rather be the sex correspondent for pretty much any magazine. So. We can have two. <laughs> We talk now. I, I, exactly. I think we can have two. Let's stick with Stacey for a second. How did you, what was your ulterior motive for choosing the first subject that you did? Well, the ulterior motive was to get out of publishing as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, no, you were working in publishing, was, and I, you were telling you know, me out in, in, in the lobby as we were sucking down on our coffees that you also were accepting books for the New York Post. Yeah, David has just outed me. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't pay the rent on my publishing salary, so on the weekends I excerpted the most salacious books the New York Post could find for their five-day-a-week excerpts, which you told me they're still doing. They still do, yes. So like Frank Sinatra throwing people into windows was a choice excerpt. Right. It, was, it was those kind, which, right. which does prepare one for a life of writing biography, I must say. They just did the Tiger Woods th last oh, they week. They did? See, there you go. It's so very, we should all be sending good. our books their <laughs> way, obviously. <laughs> Um, what was the question? <laughs> was there a question in there somewhere? It's early, oh. we're getting started. How did you oh. come to, to, yeah, to write Vera? I, I, to Vera, oh Vera, no. sorry. Vera, I had after, and, and this is a perversity of mine, which I think most of us don't share, I didn't want to write the same book twice. I didn't want to write about another French figure with an unpronounceable name, although La Rochefoucauld or Brie Savarin were great ideas. Mm -hmm. But I did want to write a book with a different form. So the idea of writing a joint portrait of some kind um, was high on my list. And I had been a sort of Nabokov freak in college. So um, every time I went back to Nabokov, I was struck by the fact that there was this gaping hole at the center of the two very good biographies of him. And that was the, that was the hole that Vera had left. And she had essentially kept those 
biographers, all of them had been men at bay, and they had written that there was a hole at the center of Nabokov's biography, and there always would be. And that always would be was kind of a red flag to me. And what was the barrier to writing Vera's life? It was a trade-off, which um, many of you know well, of I will give you the papers as long as you leave me out of the picture. And that was really Vera's life work, was to keep herself off the page. Um, and we can talk about this later, but the, the trouble with that book was she would correct a set of proofs, for example. This was one of the best pieces of material I had. I had the corrected proofs of Andrew Field's, I think, 1977 biography of Nabokov. And Vera had corrected the proofs because she felt Andrew had been a miserable scholar and made a lot of mistakes. And then she'd erased all her corrections so nobody could really see them, unless, of course, you held them up to the light on a very sunny Swiss day, and there you could see what she had corrected. And some of the corrections were to the point where the final prose made no sense. Like her explanation for why Nabokov had Vera in the classroom every day at Cornell was because he likes to see faces when he lectures. That makes no sense. But what Andrew had originally written and she had changed was he likes to see his wife's face as he lectures. And she crossed that out. So, Judith, same question. How did you come to biography? And, and well, start with that. Well, I just sort of do what people tell me to do. <laughs> I um, so doubt that. Uh, I, I, was, I started out as a poet, and then when I came back from Europe in, in the 70s, I started writing for Ms. Magazine because I speak a few languages, and I knew about all of these women writers who had been either not translated or weren't known or lost women. So I started writing about that for Ms., um, and one of the women was Dinesen. Uh, now she wasn't completely unknown, but she her what's the state of her reputation at the well, time. Well, she she what's had been. The, what's the year, Judith? Uh, that I wrote about it, that or you that started she, to. It was the mid seventies. Okay. Uh, so she had in in the in the late fifties she'd come to New York and had a kind of big splashy American welcome, and she was on television. Um, but then her work had sort of lapsed into uh, obscurity. People weren't reading her. Um, uh, Gloria Steinem loved Dinesen, and so she asked me to write about her. And I, the only piece of writing in my entire life that just came to me with no torture was a little uh, portrait that I, I invented an old Danish countess, and I made her the narrator. It was, a, it was, a, it was, it was I, and I, I somehow, I don't know why, it was a very... You met her, didn't meet her for this? No, I had never met her. She was dead. She's gone. That's, so that's a good reason. Dead was good. Always an obstacle, Yeah, yeah. And so a young, a young editor who had been at the University of Chicago with Hannah Arendt, who Arendt loved Dinesen, and he had wanted to publish a biography, he found me somehow, and uh, we had dinner, and he tried to talk me into writing a biography. I told him he was crazy. I'd never written anything longer than, you know, 2,000 words. And he persisted, and eventually, I, trying to put him off, I said, well, I would need to be paid it hadn't occurred to me that you actually... He said, well, how much would you need? And I thought, well, I'm just going to say... You thought you were going to do this for nothing? No. I just thought I'll say the largest amount of money that I can think of, and then this will be over. I said, I would need $10,000. Good. Good. <laughs> that was it. That's how I did it. That's how I got into it. You're a rough negotiator. <laughs> so at what point do you realize I'm... Oh my, I have to learn Danish, I have to do this, I ha there are archives that are up to the ceiling, this is going to take me, this is not going to be a year's project, this is, this, this is a monumental task. What, when you see the field in front of you, how long does that take and what, what does that involve? Well, I was, I, was, I was sort of protected by my complete and total ignorance when I started. I had no That's idea. The biographical science. Right, I had no idea. I'd never gone to graduate school. I didn't know how to do a footnote. And um, I, I just waded into it. And so... 
uh, it was just wading deeper and deeper, like sort of one of those coastlines where it's very, very shallow and very, very shallow. And then, so um, I, I, I had no idea. Is is what? Do, do you, to both of you, do you want your subjects dead? In other words, <laughs> let me put that a different way. Um, I, is there any advantage whatsoever to having a living subject? Is, is it fair to turn that question around to you? Because you've actually yeah. written about living yeah, people. I, unlike... well, I have, and neither one of them were very helpful. Muhammad Ali was <laughs> sick and overwritten about, and Barack Obama I got 45 minutes with So at that point. So it really wasn't But you spent time with Muhammad Ali, right? I mean, there was the it sense was like, of... It, it, at this point, he was, as, you know, he had what my father had, which was late Parkinson's, and it wasn't all that helpful. It was, it was, and that book's not a biography. It's, it's just not a... It, it's, there's no box six, aisle seven. It's right, just, right. it's an entirely different thing. It's, it, it, it's not scholarly at all. So the question really is to you. Um, for, for <laughs> Try. Yeah, we'll talk about the Obamas later. Um, I, for, I, you know, I'm, it's hard for me. I, I feel like there should be a clinical distance to some extent. And that's perhaps wrong-headed and maybe just shyness speaking. But I feel as if there's a you know, sort of Heisenberg uncertainty principle for biographers, and my being in the room with the subject is going to somehow change the temperature of things. And I do think, I mean, I'm thinking, there's this wonderful quote of Ben Franklin's that some of you may know about, three can see, keep a secret if two of them are dead. Um, and I do feel like the material comes out later, and people are willing to talk later, and that there is some advantage in time in terms of both archives and perspective. Mm -hmm. Judith, would you have liked to have had conversations with Colette or? Oh, I didn't say I didn't have conversations yeah. with them, by the way. Yeah, right. No, you have them in your head anyway. No, I, for me, death is the perspective. It's, I, the idea of an unfinished, of writing an unfinished life is very daunting. I wouldn't want to do that. And I've turned down living subjects. For example? Um, Philip. Philip Roth. Yeah. So right now, we were on this, I think this very stage. Yes. Um, in a, at another cabaret night, talking about um, uh, Philip Roth and biographer, and we were sitting with Philip Roth's biographer. Did you envy him or not envy him as task? Um, well, I always knew. I, mean, I, I, I asked because Philip Roth's biographer, um, Blake, Blake, Blake Bailey. Bailey, had what I can't imagine many biographers have experienced. The subject, toward the end of his life, still extraordinarily lucid, Basically, instead of writing another book, helping the biographer write his book. Now, levels of manipulation may be at work here, and I think you see that in, I think, in Exit Ghost. But not only does he hand him all his papers, um, which are immense, he does daily interviews with him, and they go book by book, year by year. Um, and then the subject um, does him the great courtesy Dying. Of dying. Right. I, 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 I say that not to be just a, a friend to us, but it couldn't be more ideal. Do you envy that? Not with Philip, who's a dear friend of yours, but in general as a biographer's position. Um, yes, but I always figured that Blake was going to wait till Philip died to publish it. I, I didn't think there was any way he was going to publish it before he died because he, he uh, was grateful. He was overwhelmed and grateful for all of this material and the help, and he was also wary of it as he should have been. Uh, and to have 
so I think he 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 can he both had and contrived the best of both worlds in that respect. Could you write a biography, either one of you, as somebody you despised? I think it would be hard to spend five years with someone I despised. Um, no, I think not. At one point, I thought about writing about Groucho Marx, who sues his children, and I found that a little odious, so I retreated. So, no, I do think there, I mean, I don't think love is in the picture, but I think you have to at least like and or admire your subject. How does your emotional temperature toward the subject change as the research goes on? That's a gigantic question, actually, because um, it, it's a, for me, it's a process of, uh, it, it's very much like, it's a process of separation. You're, you, um, I was asked when the Denison book came out if I identified with my subject. That's another question that is is sort of very difficult to answer in, in two sentences. Uh, you have to achieve detachment, and you have passionate feelings, uh, both negative and positive, and they're both dangerous. And so the ideal is um, a, a, a sort of... Um, Emotional detachment from the subject, in which you see you're, you're not you're not inside of this person. You can see them from right. the outside, and you can sort of circumnavigate them, um, and that just takes time. My my feelings about Colette changed in the course of the eight years. Yes, well, I, I, there were many things I absolutely loathed about her, as I, dis I discovered them. I didn't know going into it that I. Well, she was an awful mother. She was a, uh, she was a, she was uh, extremely self-centered and 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 um, selfish. Her mother said, "There's only one person in the world you can rely upon, and that's yourself." And she took that to heart, mm. and it was uh, and it motored her ex her exceptionally productive um, life as a writer and uh, got her through all kinds of of, of great difficulties, but. Um, she was, a, she was in some ways a tight-fisted, ungenerous uh, a woman who was very, very rivalrous. And there was a rivalry with us. I felt that she was dead, but nevertheless, I felt that you cannot know me. You know, it's like you... Dinesen, I felt, was someone who plunged the sword into the stone, and she was waiting for the champion to come along who could draw it out, the stone of understanding, mm. the, the, the sword of understanding her. And Colette did not want to be known. So that was the struggle. And Stacey, same, same question. Yeah, it's funny. I think there almost should be, there's like a, the subject who resists you brings out something different in yeah. the biographer. And, and for me, the resisting subject obviously was, was Vera Nabokov in the sense that she had put up every possible roadblock to anybody over, turning up any of the traces that she had left behind. Could she sense you coming, you generically? I, I don't think she ever sensed that anyone was going to come for her. I just felt that she always wanted to face herself because it magnified the effect on her, because it took away from the effect of, of his, of Vladimir's glory but to the to the extent where I mean denials were extraordinary and people who asked her how the two of them the only two people who ever seemed to have dared to ask how the two of them had met one of them was to, was told I don't remember and the second one was told who are you the KGB I mean there just was no there was no one was going to get any traction with this woman and it it came down to even denials of things that everyone knew to be true I mean she would say her, her the Nabokov's son Dmitri was a race car driver and a Ferrari enthusiast, and he drove like the wind. And Vera would say, "I was never really worried about driving with Dmitri." Well, I've driven with Dmitri. No mother was not worried about driving with Dmitri. <laughs> I mean, it just categorically untrue. Um, Nabokov had an affair in the 1930s, which Vera denied, 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 until she discovered that some letters written to that woman existed. At which point, she relented. 
But then she did this extraordinary thing when it was 1937, late in the middle of the year, and when Nabokov's correspondence was published and Vera was asked to pick a couple of personal letters, she just happened to pick a couple of personal letters from that summer. Mm. I mean, just there was this amazing, it's you know. The, it's as if the subject can hear the biographer coming. Flapping around in the distance, yeah. And they, you know, I, I, John Updike tried to deal with biography by doing it himself. He wrote self-consciousness as if to get the job away. Then very soon after he dies, Adam Begley comes along to do the biography and, the, and Martha Updike puts up as many walls as possible. I mean, Philip Roth befriends a guy named Ross Miller, becomes his close friend, basically hires him as a biographer, then they rejects him. It, it, you can hear the biographer coming. Well, the best is Thomas Hardy, who writes his own biography but publishes it under his wife's name. <laughs> That's got to be the best. Genius. Genius. I'm doing yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is a phenomenon that I, that I, that I envy in real biographers. They, they're in a, it's, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning or at the University of Texas uh, uh, archive or wherever it is, and you find a letter and somehow life blooms out Yeah, of it. that happens. Tell me about that. Happens. Once every 10 years. Every 10 years, yeah. Well, the Denison archives were an exception, a one time only. This was, this was, I was doing the research in the 70s. Where is this? They were at the Royal Library in Copenhagen. And um, they hadn't been archived. They were, it was just boxes of stuff. Uh, all through, the way my out, basement out is. Out of order in Danish. Out of order, mostly in Danish. That's great. Huge boxes. And then once, it, it took two years to get access to them. And once I did, every morning in my carol, they would deliver these boxes. It was like cleaning out your basement. And so I didn't know what was in them, or no one had read them. No one had been through them. And um, I remember that there was a telegram, I going through them, there was a telegram from Dennis Van Chatten to Denison um, that said, um, sorry about Daniel, wish I could do otherwise, blah, 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 love Dennis. And it referred to a pregnancy, and it referred to a child that she, she either thought she was pregnant or was pregnant and lost the child. And he was saying, I can't do this. And, and there it was. There was this sort of extraordinary, uh, it, it, it was the kind of key to a, a larger puzzle about them and about him and about her and her illness and this and that. Um, and I remember finding the telegram and thinking, and there were, there were many, many things in there. There were, there were that, that fell into place. It's mostly in letters that it happens rather than in manuscripts. And do you begin to feel, and I could easily ask anyone here who does the work, that archives are more trustworthy than people? Definitely, I think. <laughs> people are completely untrustworthy. I'm untrustworthy I was, I, I, to myself. I mean, well, each of us is an unreliable narrator. But does that mean we never lie in letters or diaries yes, or journals? Yes, we, we do, but, you, but it's, it's cumulative somehow. The, um, the evidence you is you cumulative. You trust the paper more than you would trust interviews or oral history or the like. You, it, it's a, it's, it's the, the mass of material that you turn up. It's, 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 uh, it's Rashomon. You have five different stories from five different people, and then you have 50 letters around the same subject. And eventually, you don't get to the truth. You approach it. You don't, can't get to it. Stacey, same question. Some, some, I mean, I have come to sometimes feel that the archives can lie. I just doubt everything. This is a really miserable business we're in, isn't it? Um, I, there, there was a series of papers when, in his first years, um, in his first years in New York during the war, Santos Zuberi is living in New York as a foreign national. Um, 
no one really knows which side he's on. And so needless to say, he's um, being trailed mercilessly around town by um, various um, then OSS people, all of whom are, I think, like 23-year-old Harvard grads who are submitting reports on his feelings um, to their superiors. And all of those things are preserved in the National Archives. And not a single detail in any of those is remotely accurate. Um, partly just because the situation of the French abroad during the early years of the war, before the U.S. enters the war, is so murky that very few people have figured out how to, had figured out how to penetrate it, much less these young, um, these young sleuths. So there was an enormous cache of material that was just plain wrong, um, as there was about Santos then mistress, who was also being followed, who was then in Portugal. Much of it wrong, although very useful in getting her to talk. So, um, you know, there was a whole series of documentation that was wrong. I'm more struck by what often you don't find and how completely telling that can be For example. often. Um, why is there so little account of, why is there no account really of Caesar in Egypt during his time with Cleopatra? Clearly that was something that no good Roman wanted anyone to remember because that was the illicit moment, and the illicit part of Caesar's life. He shouldn't have been consorting with an Egyptian queen on foreign soil. He should have come home after the Alexandrian War. Why was he cavorting along the Nile with this woman with whom he has a child? Very little anywhere about that, about those months. Stacey, after X number of books... There was no archive in that sense, I should No, have. I mean, that, <laughs> I, I, when I first heard... When that working from that, Cleopatra's that, diaries, I... Seemed, yeah. Didn't that seem... I don't mean to be silly about this, but that project of writing a biography of Cleopatra seems somewhere in between audacious and crazy. Lunatic would be yeah, the word you're yeah. looking for, yeah. Because of the archival situation, because of what, what we, the vast amounts that we don't know and is unknowable. Why I, take that on? My only defense is that um, Vera Nabokov felt the same way that I felt, for really? the, I felt for those years. And maybe that was just the time in which I was working. I guess that book came out in 1999. The idea of writing about a writer's wife, who was a, was a wife, basically, seemed crazy. What were the precedents for it? Um, Jean Strauss and Brenda Maddox. What am I forgetting? Um, there weren't So, so Joy, Joyce, Adams, Alice Adams, what, what else? Or, uh, James, rather. And what, what else is there? That's it? There must have been others, which I'm suddenly blanking on because of the early hour. Um, sorry. Oh, Zelda, exactly. Nancy right. Milford, right, exactly. Um, so, yes, there was archival material, but I felt I was always having to justify. I felt it was a, a, a sort of wacky idea as well. Cleopatra was an idea I'd had for a long time, and I hadn't. I'd hesitated because I didn't know how to do it. And I think mm -hmm. initially I simply thought it wasn't a straight biography. It would be, it would turn into six scenes with Cleopatra, basically. And then as I began to work, and again, this was the miracle of, of archival material, if not necessarily her archive, it became clear to me that there were a whole, um, there were not only scenes, there was, dial there was dialogue in Plutarch, there were scenes that could be established. And there were whole swaths of, of Alexandrian life um, that actually could be documented, that one could figure out what she did with her day, something I didn't think anyone had ever really thought about before. What did she do all day? Right. Um, <laughs> she rained. Yeah, she rained, which, you know, takes up a she lot of time. She rained and rained and rained. <laughs> rained all day. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I've had the feeling occasionally, even my, you know, modest, you know, excursions into whatever it is, journalism, I think it's more, more, more the description, that there has to be a point at which the journalist slash biographer cares more about 
a certain moment in someone's life than the person who actually lived it. And because of how hard fought it was to discover it. I'll give you an example. Um, when I, I was writing about Obama, a, a lunatic project in too short a time, and if I had another year, it would have been half as long. But <laughs> such, such was my That's particular circumstances, <laughs> but mine in particular, a big, messy, wet wash of a book. But nevertheless, what I did not uh, delve into much were girlfriends. And I, because I, I knew my rivals in crime out there, David Marinus and others, were, were having more success with this. And I told myself, well, you know, I had girlfriends in high school too, but I don't really think about them much. And they probably, it didn't really have, you know, whatever happened in the backseat of a car in 1976 in Paramus, New Jersey, probably doesn't bear much on what little I'm doing now, you know, whatever journalistic work I'm doing now. Obama had an interview with David Marinus, and he, gave, he always gave 45 minutes to every book writer that he thought was reasonably credible. David goes into the, to the White House, the work of state stops, Marinus gets halfway through his interview and, and lets on that he knows about girlfriend X. Suddenly, the interview expands to two hours <laughs> because Obama wants to know more about the girl because he hasn't thought about this woman in a long time. <laughs> Not because he's a horrible misogynist, but because life moves on and maybe when you were your 18-year-old girlfriend. It, Marinus spent tremendous energy and time to get, get these facts. Are you ever, in, again, in aisle three, box 14, thinking, I have worked so hard to find out about whether Isaac Dennison liked cornflakes or or, or 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 that it meant it almost means more to you and your literary construction and, and scholarly construction of the figure than maybe even to the person herself. Well I think the person herself I just discovered in my basement I had a big flood letters that uh, letters from my twenties, my parents' letters to me, mine to them, friends writing to me. That you had forgotten completely. Completely. I mean I knew the, I maybe I remember the letters that letters might have existed. The immediacy of the letter, reading it in two thousand and nineteen that was written in nineteen seventy two or something. Yeah. Uh, of you that that the sense of what happened and where I was and what I felt was was obliterated. I, I had no no memory of it. So of course it was more intense. It was more. It was a revelation. It was like finding. It was like being in an archive and finding uh, the yeah. the letters of a subject. So the subject herself. Um, so you're in a privileged position, uh, reading something. I mean, with Colette, there were letters that from her youth. She lived. She 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 died at eighty one. So she wouldn't have remembered writing these letters at 17 or 20 or 30, whatever. And there I am reading it as a grown-up and very intently. So I think in that sense, the emotion has faded for the person who had it, but it is, uh, it is revived for the biographer who discovers the material. A somewhat related question. It, you, you've both done literary biographies. What's the relationship and how to analyze the literary work as opposed to the literary life let? How fair, unfair is it to uh, take the novel as evidence of the life lived on Monday through Sunday? I'm, I'm very loath to make that leap, usually. And my problem is usually figuring out how you integrate a discussion of the work into the discussion of the life, because the two don't necessarily jive completely. And there are exceptions to that. And, and I 
was lucky in the first book with Santa Exuberly, basically everything he writes is what we would now consider memoir, even if it's published as novel, um, to the point where some books have, were published in France as fiction and they're published in America as nonfiction. So there's a really a confusion there and everything is based on his experience. So you can read the life in the work um, and the themes of the work are very consistent from book to book, including even The Little Prince, which you could read as nonfiction in some ways. So, um, so there, there I was on more solid ground. With Nabokov, there are a couple of cases where you have crossover, um, and it gets complicated when, for example, the people who knew Nabokov best, from Nina Berberova to most of the Russian expatriate community, all said that they felt his novel, The Gift, was closer to a legitimate memoir than Speak Memory, his memoir. So, you know, are you then allowed to read The Gift as it is, as it is a telling, as a telling book about Nabokov's life? And that was particularly important to me because it is a book that contains a lot of Vera, thinly disguised, and it is written at a point of crisis in the marriage where he's clearly writing his way back into the marriage, and you can see that um, in the novel. He's at the same time that he's writing this amazing pay into marriage, assuring his mistress that he's um, writing, that he's, that he's going to get out of the situation and he's writing faithlessly about faithfulness. So, I mean, there's clearly a moment there where the two um, cross roads, but I otherwise would sort of veer from that. Um, to your earlier point about um, how hard you work to find something, I think we've all had this where when you had to like go into that flea-ridden garage, you know, 3,000 miles from home to get a document, you're going to use that document whether it belongs in the book or not. <laughs> I mean, there is definitely something about the, the amount of struggle it took to obtain and how, how really, you know, salient it's going to be to the text. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I, I remember writing about Out of Africa, uh, when I got to that chapter, all, that all books take place at the moment they are written hmm. and um, for, the, for the writer. So I, I think you, you, of course, cannot treat anything as autofiction. Everything has been destroyed, even one's own letters, email. This is why we were saying documents, what are supposedly, you know, letters written in the moment, they can lie, lie just as well as anything else. But there's, you're encoding, you're, the, the work comes out of you. The work comes out of your, the immediate experience, what's happening to you then, what's happened to you in the past. So you can look for evidence of the mind, of the feelings, of the past, of the, um, the social history, the social history of, 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 of every of work, of fiction or nonfiction. I think it's a legitimate to use the work in that way, not to peg, you know, not the work is not a series of hooks that you can hang things right. on. So, but there's definitely, the, Colette was extraordinarily vehement about the, no one should use the writer's work to interpret the life. And many, that is- a, And well advised, right? Yes. Um, and she actually sued to have some letters of hers uh, that came up for sale blocked and she lost. And they're in the- What was the, what's the story behind that? They're in, the, they're in the Bibliothèque Nationale. They were letters that she'd written as a young woman to Robert de Montesquieu, who was a flamboyant figure of the fin de siècle. And she was, they were flirt, they were, he was gay, but they were very flirtatious and sort of provocative and, and silly, you know, and, right. and posing and charming. And there was nothing terrible about them, especially from the point of view of the 1990s when I was looking at them. But she, she felt that this was, this was a terrible invasion of a writer's privacy to have any personal correspondence um, in public or, or even in, in sort of archival hands. That was, that was how she felt about it. In the biographers, well, novelists all have not, not only novels that they read and that feed them and, 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 and shape their lives, they also have models for what they 
want to do, novels that they see as, if I could only do that, then I would be achieving something. Um, in the art of biography, who is that and what is that for you, Stacey? Um, it changes for me. Um, I think always, always and at all times, um, Richard Elman's um, work, generally. Um, when I was writing my first book, it was two odd books. It was um, James Mello, Charmed Circle. Has anyone else even read that book? Um, and <laughs> Justin. Um, and um, Alan Judd's Ford Maddox Ford biography, a book I'm sure only his mother and I read, um, which has no footnotes. And it's just a beautifully novelistic account of a life. Um, and somehow, when writing my first book, those were the touchstones. Leon Adele's book about how to write a biography on writing lives was obviously um, of huge help. And there's a steady diet of, of you know, Strachey and Holmes and you know, a couple of other, Judith Thurman, David Remnick. Um, um, but those were the mainstays. It, it, does, it, it interestingly changes over time and, and the search for a model um, for a book to kind of hold to while I'm working is, is important. I mean, it's always been important and it was particularly vexing when I, when I was working on Cleopatra because I... I thought there should be, I thought I was doing something different and I wasn't sure what it was, but I figured someone else had done it. And I kept reaching toward books by books about subjects where there was little information, like Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And finally I settled on Jack Miles because I figured if he, I must know more about Cleopatra than he knew about God, right? <laughs> um, but that wasn't what I wanted to do either. And so that was, a, I didn't have a model and that was actually really difficult to be on terrain where that, I didn't feel like anyone had kind of done this before. So I'm much more comfortable when there's a book on, or a couple of books on the shelf that I can pull down regularly. A Nancy, Nancy Mitford's books, I'm afraid I hmm. do. That's my junk food, yeah. That's your junk food. I'm reading the so New York I, Post, I and you're reading to, Nancy Mitford, I, and then excuse that's your me, you're junk reading food. my work in the New York Post. Okay, so please. <laughs> Not anymore, sadly. Um, I, I had no idea, as I say, how to organize a big narrative. The longest thing I'd written was 2,000 words. So Leonie Dell was my master uh, on, on Henry James. On Henry James, the four-volume Henry James, because I thought I didn't know how to write a book. So I was like, books, chapters, right? So you have to write chapters. You can't do a biography in chapters. It's too big, too big a unit. And I only realized that reading Adele, and he has these short sections which are numbered. I love those little numbered sections. And and in you know in the in the span of a chapter, you cover a lot of ground. And if you do it in little numbered sections, even as you're writing it and organizing it you can link them up and, and give them a shape and that's and an enormous narrative then begins to emerge and I learned that from him. Um, I Later on, the, the, uh, the, the sheer brilliance of Graham Robb's uh, prose style, his biography of Rambeau, again, another completely mysterious, he's sort of Cleopatra-like Rambeau. There's a lot about his, his, his youth in France but the rest of his life when he disappears uh, and becomes probably a slave trader. Uh, and Rob was, he first he found new things and then he, he sort of did that brilliantly. But it, it's the, it was the prose, um, the, the sentences. Uh, and, and writing beautiful sentences for the length of five or six or seven hundred pages is something that, was, that I admire very much. And then Richard Holmes, who's one of the most innovative, I think, and important biographers of our, my generation. Uh, so um, they, were all, they were all sort of my masters. There's been a lot of write uh, for a long time, obviously, writing about biography and questions of biography. And, and Janet Malcolm's book about Sylvia Plath certainly got into a lot of these questions. What's your reaction to um, those kind of theoretical and ethical proddings about the biographer's art? 
talking about. In terms of the biographer as trespasser? Or? Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think that we're all trespassing to some extent. I mean, would any of us want a biography written about us? God, no, right? Um, that's why we're all burning our papers when we get home tonight. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do see it as trespass. I also see it as a responsibility to history. So it doesn't, and I think the two, where those balance each other out is pretty clear to me. Um, I think part of her inter interviewer's bargain with subject, I do buy into, and that may explain to some extent my hesitation to working on a living subject. Um, when you were talking about <laughs> playing interviews, interviews, Obama and his interest in um, the previous girlfriend, I was thinking about um, a problem I had with the Saint-Exupéry book with the longtime girlfriend um, who was really the, sta the, the steadiest force in, in Saint-Ex's life who was living in France um, with him for several years, although he was married to someone else, and then stays in France during the war when he comes to America and settles in with a absolutely fabulous, charismatic young American woman in whose apartment he writes The Little Prince and whom I also interviewed. And when I said to the French mistress that I had met the American mistress, our relationship changed substantially. Um, and she was all questions, interestingly. And what was Sylvia doing now? And, and the best line, of course, was, oh, Sylvia, I hear she has terrible legs. <laughs> um, and, and interestingly, and, and this had been said before, the two women looked shockingly alike, which was even clearer when they were both in their 80s. Um, tall, blonde, entitled was how he liked his women, and that was sort of true. Um, but, you know, there is, so I could see that I was playing a game that I didn't really necessarily mean to be playing, but that wasn't entirely fair. Mm. And that may be why I then wrote about someone who was very dead next, so I didn't have to interview Ben Franklin's girlfriends. <laughs> um, there, there are many adjectives that uh, reviewers have for even the best biographies. Magisterial usually means very long. long. <laughs> the other is a more elusive, odd term. It, it's definitive. What does that mean? It is, is it a legitimate term? Is anything definitive for very long? Would you know? I, I'm sure Leon Adel's biography of, of, of James or Elman's of. Joyce or Wilder term definitive in this review and that, are they in fact definitive? No, I think every generation gets a go at the, at the great figures, uh, um, at the controversial figures, at the beloved figures, and, and um, maybe more than once in a generation, it depends how you count the generation, 15 years. So no, it's open, and, and, and because you, you see, you, you'll, you'll reinterpret a life uh, with, there's more material, there's less material, or the person has, is suddenly relevant to the person. Is, no, nothing's definitive, absolutely nothing. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, you know, I think I felt this particularly when I went back. At some point I went back and stupidly, I don't know how you all do this with the earlier biographies, but I stupidly read some of the earlier Cleopatra biographies. There are a lot of Cleopatra biographies, but I read some of what were the best. Stupidly? I, I don't you, usually isn't it read obligatory? Those. I don't usually read the other biographers. No? Oh. no, I just go back, insofar as I'm, it's possible, I usually go back to the primary sources and I will read secondary sources on the supporting cast, but I otherwise don't, I try oh. not to. I think and that's early on, Joe Ellis, I think, said to me that there was like a Bermuda Triangle and you could get lost there, and I I thought that sound advice. But, he, but he's dealing always with those founding fathers of whom there, and you have too. Uh, but, but you've also written about people that there aren't biographies, or if there are, they're, they're scant. Right. I mean, certainly in Vera's case, there, was, yeah, there were yeah. like six lines on the page about yeah. 
Um, lots of dedications. About her. But when I but when I did go lots of dedications, Nicholson Baker once said it was a nervous tick with Nabokov that every <laughs> book was dedicated to Vera. Um, or fear. Yeah, or the, once he, there was one book that was dedicated to his mother in Russian and Vera in English. Um, <laughs> that's, that's hedging your bets. Um, when I went back to read those earlier biographies of Cleopatra, it was interesting to see how often people would say, you know, she waged war, she ran the economy, she controlled the navy, but she was just a girl. And, you know, obviously I wasn't, I was writing at a very different time. And so it struck me, you know, really that we are, as much as we hate to think of ourselves as such, um, coming to these things from the perspective of the moment in which we write. I just wanted to go back to the notion of trespassing. I, I in a New Yorker book review before your time, I was a roundup of biographies of Charlotte Bronte. Um, the line came to me that biography is uh, dirty-minded fidelity and fiction is high-minded betrayal. So um, I think it, it's a work of a handmaiden or hand, <clears throat> hand uh, servant and body servant in many respects. But I think it's a work of, of, of extraordinarily... Uh, people should be grateful to have someone... If, if they're dead, they can't be grateful. But... I, I think I think it's a worthy enterprise. I I'm not sure it's tres it, it's somewhat trespassing. But if you don't, if you are a public figure or a writer, either destroy all your papers, or you can be sure that there will be a biography. Is, is if email, you destroy your papers, that's no guarantee. We're not coming. It, well, this is it. Is email in effect destroying papers because it's so easily obliterated? First of all, letters and emails are written in a different spirit and with a different voice. Um, this is probably the most discussed or most banal question possible to raise at a biographer's conference, but is email killing the art of biography? It's a daily record. It's people in, in the 19th century, 18th century, everybody wrote letters every day. That was how they communicated. So there was a mass and a sort of wonderful mass of, of uh, life documented on a daily basis. That's what email does. And um, growing up, I was not writing letters every day to, to people, to my far-flung friends. The telephone obliterated that to some degree. So email, in one sense, has restored it. If you go back five years and but, you... Uh, letters, once you've sent them, are all over the place. They can be collected. Da, da, da. Emails can be gone dunk like that. Yeah. And people don't save them with the same fealty and... Gmail saves them. It depends what your server is, yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> and what kind of lawyer the biography has. Okay, so Stacey and Judith, thank you very much. Thank you. You just heard award-winning authors David Remnick, Stacey Schiff, and Judith Thurman speaking at BIO's May 18, 2019 conference at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. We'll feature more highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference next week. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>